Today at Reader's Corner, Kevin Roos, author of Future Proof, Nine Rules for Humans in the Age of Automation. I'm Bob Custer. Welcome to Reader's Corner. Automation shapes our entire human experience with artificial intelligence and algorithms influence the TV shows we watch, the music we listen to, the beliefs we hold, and the relationships we form. And while the age-old debate over whether automation will destroy jobs rages on, an even more important question is being ignored. How can we be happy, successful humans in a world built by and for machines? In Future Proof, Nine Rules for Humans in the Age of Automation, New York Times technology columnist Kevin Roos lays out a hopeful, pragmatic vision of how humans can thrive in the machine age. He shares the secrets of people and organizations that have survived technological change and explains how we can protect our own futures. Kevin Roos is an award-winning technology columnist for the New York Times. He's the host of The Rabbit Hole, a New York Times-produced podcast about what the internet is doing to us, and he's a regular guest on The Daily. Kevin is the New York Times bestselling author of three books, Future Proof, Young Money, and The Unlikely Disciple. Kevin Roos, welcome to Reader's Corner. Thanks for having me, Bob. So we have so many reassuring claims that the technology in our lives and its increasing uh, influence and presence will be just fine. You are a bit more cautious about the future. And I'd wonder if you could start by sharing with us your sub-optimistic concern and where you fall on a scale of one to 10, if one is least concerned and 10 is most concerned. Sure. Well, in the book, I call myself a, a sub-optimist because I am genuinely an optimist about a lot of the technology that's out there today. I think that things like AI and automation could, for example, help us discover new drugs to treat, you know, life-threatening illnesses. It could help, you know, fix the climate. There are all kinds of things that it, all kinds of ways that technology can help us. But I am not as optimistic as many of my friends in the tech industry that all of this technology will end up helping us because in some cases, I think it's being misused. So think about something like, Facial recognition, you know, that, that, um, you know, helps you log on to your iPhone or, or, you know, gets you through, um, you know, the checkpoints at the airport faster. Um, there are all kinds of good ways to use that, but there are also bad ways to use that. Like with law enforcement, there have been cases of, you know, police departments wrongfully arresting someone because they matched someone on a facial recognition scan. You know, they got wrongly implicated as being. So all these technologies have upsides and downsides. And I would say that I am optimistic about the technology and slightly less optimistic about the people who are implementing and running the technology. And, you know, maybe I'm a, 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 a what do we say? The scale is one is, is pessimistic and 10 is most optimistic. Okay. I'm probably about an eight out of 10 on the optimism scale for the technology itself. And maybe a four or a five on the humans. Uh-huh. That makes sense. And before we get any further, it's difficult to have a conversation like this about the role of technology without thinking about what COVID has done to us. Uh, there is no question that it has affected the march toward automation and machine learning. In fact, I understand from reading your book that you had a chapter uh, about um, the role that technology would play in our lives. And, and you decided, ah, hmm, now with COVID here and what it's doing to us, I think I'm going to have to take that chapter out. Tell us about that. Well, I, I had a chapter in the book, which I started writing um, a couple years before COVID, um, that was all about remote work. 
And uh, I had been a remote worker. Um, I had worked from home for a number of years. And I was looking at research and conducting interviews with experts who told me that basically remote work is very challenging for people, not because they're less productive, but because it it emphasizes the kinds of skills that can be easily automated. So if you are a, a travel agent and you're working remotely, automation can do certain parts of that job pretty easily. It can book the plane tickets, it can book the hotel rooms, it can find you a good deal on a travel package. What it can't do is kind of the the soft, nuanced human work of interacting with people face-to-face. And that's the kind of work that I think will mostly be done by humans in the coming years, even as AI makes inroads into all these other fields. And so I think that remote workers will have a challenging time um, staying ahead of the robots, as it were. And I still believe that. But um, a chapter making the case that we should all work in densely packed offices together um, didn't <laughs> seem to make much sense after the pandemic. So I ended up uh, reshaping that a little bit. <laughs> well, I guess you could say at one point that you were the fly on the wall at the Davos meeting not too long ago, where the movers and shakers get together and in public meetings, they tell the world what's wrong and how it should be fixed. And then in the evening, when uh, the media is out of the way, uh, they start talking. And uh, you, you heard some things in those meetings off the record about how technology could help their companies, for example, that is the reason why many Americans have concerns about where automation and artificial intelligence is going to take us. Yeah, so Davos is this big annual conference. I call it the Coachella of capitalism. It's basically like this you know, giant <laughs> festival where all the, all the world's richest and most powerful people go for a week in the winter. And so there are kind of two parts to that experience. And one is sort of the daytime experience where you have all these panels and speeches and these sort of high-minded ideas about, you know, using AI to augment human intelligence and help workers and create more jobs. And that was, you know, fine and good. And then at night, you would go to these like parties, essentially, these big off-the-record dinners. And there I heard a bunch of this CEOs and powerful people just gossiping about how fast they were replacing their human workers with automation. Um, they were really like excited about the prospect of taking away people's jobs and giving them over to computers. And they were racing toward it with no real regard for the people on the other end of that process. So, you know, one consultant I talked to said that his clients, his CEOs uh, that he works with, were asking them whether they could do the same amount of work with 1% of the human labor, whether they could basically get rid of 99% of their people. So that's that was worrisome to me. And that's one of the reasons that I frankly decided to write the book, because I thought that people should know that these kinds of conversations are taking place. And as a follow-up, in, in your book, you discuss on more than one occasion, or you try to identify what jobs are going to survive the AI revolution. Uh, and usually people will point to jobs that you call the compassion jobs or the creative jobs. But you you have your own take on whether or not that's uh, as solid an argument as some would make it. Yeah. So there's this idea that's been around for a long time that so-called creative jobs and compassion jobs are safe from automation. Things like teachers and you know doctors and nurses and therapists and clergy and artists and musicians and journalists. And that I think is wishful thinking because I, uh, I talk to AI companies every day and 
there are a lot of companies and startups that are trying to automate work in those fields as we speak and that are doing it in some cases quite successfully. So um, I think a better way of looking at which jobs are at risk from automation is not by looking at what their titles are, but by looking at how they're being performed. What skills are people actually bringing to those jobs? Because if you are, for example, a doctor, that encompasses a wide range of, of skills. You could be a radiologist who spends all their time reading scans in a lab, um, or you could be a pediatrician who's very good at working with small children and families. And those two jobs are, you know, they have the same title, doctor, but they're radically different. And they're one of them, the radiology job is much, much easier to replace with automation. And so I think we need to shift away from this model where your job title is sort of what defines whether or not you're in trouble um, and toward a, a model that says that actually it's more important how you do your job um, and what skills and, and abilities you bring to that. Is there a way you could give us some few examples of what skills those would be? Sure. So in the book, I talk about three main categories of work that I think will be very hard for uh, robots to do better than humans. And they're called surprising, social, and scarce. So surprising work is work that involves sort of like chaos and fluid rules and changing variables, things that aren't sort of regular and predictable. And that would include, you know, jobs like firefighters or, um, you know, EMTs, but it's also, you know, there are a lot of jobs that don't follow regular sets of rules like kindergarten teachers. A robot would be horrible at that <laughs> because that that is a job that is defined by chaos. Um, the second category is is what I call social work, which is work that sort of taps into our sort of basic human desires for companionship, for um, for entertainment, for experiences, for understanding. These are the jobs that are sort of that are, don't involve making things. They involve making people feel things. So those jobs are, are harder for robots to do just because we don't want robots to do them. We don't really accept machine substitutes when it comes to things like, you know, who's going to be the, you know, the doctor who tells us that we've come down with some life-threatening illness or you know, delivers some bad news or somebody who, you know, is an entertainer and acts in our favorite movies. That's not a job that we're going to except um, being done by robots. And then the third category is what I call scarce work, which is work that involves sort of rare high stakes situations or unusual skills or abilities. So an example of this is the 911 operator. And when you call 911 to report an emergency these days, you get a human on the other end of the line. A human picks up, not a robot. And that's not because we don't have phone answering robots. We could automate that job. But we have kind of decided as a society that there are some things that are too important to trust to machines. And that 911 response is one of them. And so there are a number of those kinds of jobs that exist that are just basically too important, too high stakes, or too rare to be automated. And that's the third kind of work I think is largely protected. You're listening to Kevin Roos. He's the author of Future Proof, Nine Rules for Humans in the Age of Automation. And we usually think of people losing their jobs uh, due to technology. Uh, we think of some robot moving into the factory floor and uh, all of a sudden 10 people get pink slips that they're no longer needed. Um, you have two really great examples in your book of my bank and Kodak as examples of how machines really do replace us 
but not in the way I just described. Could you explain that? Right. So I think there's this sort of model that we have where, you know, one day you just show up at your job and there's like a robot sitting in your seat and your boss kind of says, sorry, Bob, uh, your services will no longer be needed. We've trained Bob bot 3000 to do your job. And, um, and, you know, here's your pink slip. And that's not really how it works most of the time these days. Um, in the book, I talk about this example of my bank, which is a, it's a it's a lender in China. It's one of China's largest uh, lending firms. They issue you know loans for cars and houses and things like that. And they do it using this process that they call three one zero, which is means that it takes three minutes to fill out an application for a loan. It takes one second for an algorithm to decide whether you are credit worthy or not. And zero humans are involved in the process from start to finish. So they have managed to lend out billions and billions of dollars this way with a a pretty low default rate. And so they've been taking business from more traditional Chinese lending firms that have thousands of loan officers doing those kinds of calculations and making those kinds of loans by hand. And so it's not that those loan officers are being replaced by robots at their jobs. What's happening instead is that this company that that has automated that work is taking market share from them and is causing their businesses to decline and in some cases to have to do layoffs. So that's one example of how this can happen to people, how automation can destroy jobs, even if the people whose jobs are being destroyed don't necessarily know that's what's happening. Well, if people aren't necessarily losing their jobs, that that doesn't mean that technology might have a negative impact on them. And uh, the example that you use is your statement that artificial intelligence has been promoted to middle management. Uh, And that's not always good for workers, but you might help us understand. I'm sure there's a lot of people out there who are listening to this who know exactly what that means. They They may have some metrics applied to their daily work schedule that is exactly what you're getting at here. Absolutely. I think in in white collar workplaces right now, the big trend is to automate management. Um, This is true of of white collar workplaces. It's also true of of a lot of sort of blue collar workplaces. In, In an Amazon warehouse, for example... There are still tons of humans. We know that you know they, they employ hundreds of thousands of humans to pick the stuff off the shelves and put it into the boxes and tape up the boxes. But the management layer, the people who sort of keep those humans on track, who keep them productive, who make sure they're not slacking off, that has all been automated. So now, you know, algorithms tell you if you're meeting your targets or not. They hire and fire you, you know, if you're not living up to expectations. So that's a case in which the management layer has been automated rather than the people who are actually performing the work at the ground level. And that's happening now across um, industries where you have these AI tools, these sort of what I call bossware, which is being installed at certain companies to essentially keep track of workers, to surveil them, to make sure that they're staying on task, to track how much productivity they're having to pit them against other employees and kind of a survival of the fittest. There's a real sort of uh, sense in which the modern American worker has maybe a human boss, but also has some algorithms that are functioning as bosses and are managing that person's output and productivity. And so that's, I think, a, a trend that needs to be paid a lot more attention to because it's um, it's not going so well at a lot of these places where robots are being told to manage people. The people, it turns out, don't like being managed by robots. 
So what are the boring bots and why should workers be concerned about those? Or not workers necessarily, but those on the, the end of the, the product that is being analyzed here. So boring bots are, are what I call these bots that are sort of like not Siri or Alexa or any of the ones that we think about when we think about robots. They're very faceless, sort of very prosaic software programs that do things like you know, take data from one kind of database and convert it to a format that can be read by another kind of database. Like the kind of task that is done millions of times a day in the back offices of some huge corporation, um, but that now can be automated. And there's a whole industry that is trying to automate those jobs. It's called robotic process automation, which again is a very boring title, uh, befitting the, the objects it's describing. And RPA, or robotic process automation, is a multi-billion dollar industry. It's got clients um, you know, that include many of the largest companies in America. And it is growing like crazy as companies figure out how to replace those workers with software. So most people, uh, I think, in these kinds of workplaces are not going to be uh, put out of work by some fancy humanoid robot sitting in their seat. It's going to be one of these faceless database plugins that allows the accounting department to work, you know, 15% more efficiently. So when you graduated from college, uh, like many of your fellow students, you were told to bone up on those hard skills. And uh, I remember when I was serving as president at Boise State, uh, we were all about encouraging humanities students to take coding classes. Coding was the big deal. Everybody's supposed to have a coding class. You can't survive in the world. You don't have a coding class yet in your reporting on artificial intelligence and automation, you, you hear a slightly different story. And one of the terms that comes to mind is combinatorial creativity. That's a long word, but uh, maybe you can help us understand how humans may have it over machines after all. Yeah. So this is one of the big surprises of this book for me was I, I went to a bunch of AI experts um, and I asked them sort of what skills people should be developing to stay relevant and employable and valuable in the future. And I expected them to tell me that, you know, everyone should be taking coding classes, just like you said, develop your hard skills, major in a STEM subject if you're still in school, like engineering or math or data science, and then go out into the workplace and find one of these sort of hard skills engineering jobs that pays a lot of money. And, you know, they said that's sort of still important. It's still important that people have a basic understanding of how technology works. But they said that actually the skills that they would recommend that people acquire more of are these kind of softer human skills, these skills that sort of resist automation, these skills like creativity and empathy and leadership and collaboration, these things that aren't really taught in schools, you know, at, at the high school and, and college level, but that end up being really important in the workplace and you know, will become increasingly important um, as robots take over a lot of the hard skills work that en today's engineers are doing. So I remember I was talking with a CEO once and, um, and he was complaining that even though he, um, you know, had lots of engineers and could hire lots of engineers, he couldn't find salespeople. He couldn't find people who had the interpersonal skills to go to a client and close a big deal. And that was what he was missing. And so I think that's going to be the case for a lot of companies in the coming years is that they will have the engineering talent that they need. There will still be engineers at these companies, but there will also be a big need for people with these kind of more relational skills, these more human skills. 
You're listening to Kevin Roos. He's the author of Future Proof, Nine Rules for Humans in the Age of Automation. So your book is divided into two parts. And thus far, we've really been talking about the challenge that technology presents us, whether we're workers, whether we're consumers. But the second part of the book is the rule part, the nine rules for for humans in the age of automation. You've already touched on one or two of those, but I want to make sure that we we cover a little bit of ground there. Uh, We're not going to get through all of this, and that's why I want uh, our listeners to get the name of that book again. It's called Future Proof, and it's by Kevin Roos. And it's it's a great way to rethink how we use technology. And let's start by discussing machine drift. Now, you talk about recommendation engines. Uh, I know what that is, and my Amazon bill is probably twice the size it should be if it wasn't for the recommendation engine. Uh, I'm not as familiar with frictionless products, so I'm going to let you explain to us what those are and what the point is here and, and how we can regain control over our lives in this sense. Yeah, so the chapter you're referring to is called um, Resist Machine Drift. And Machine Drift is the name that I have given to my own tendency to kind of surrender my decisions and my daily habits to these machines, to algorithms, to recommendation engines. You know, I, for a long time, was basically outsourcing my entire life to these to these devices. Uh, I would let Netflix recommend the shows I watched and Spotify, you know, would recommend the music I listened to and Amazon would recommend what toilet paper brand I should buy. And I would just kind of blindly follow all this because I assumed, you know, Hey, this is just, this is helping me save time. It's more efficient. But what I learned through researching this book is that those systems, those algorithms, those recommendation engines, they are not necessarily operating in our best interests. Sometimes they are steering us not towards something that we would choose organically, but that the company that makes the algorithm wants us to choose. Um, Sometimes it's the opposite of what we want. Sometimes it's just sort of removed what we want. But it's not the case that we can just sort of blindly surrender our entire human experience to these algorithms and trust that they will do right by us. So one of the things that I uh, studies that I found was actually uh, quite interesting. It was a study uh, that was done a couple of years ago where they basically uh, sort of manipulated people's algorithmic rankings. Their sort of ratings, their sort of star ratings on that you see on systems like Netflix or Spotify. And it turned out that people trust these ratings more than they trust their own actual judgments. They prefer what the machine said that they should like rather than what they might intrinsically enjoy. And so I think that's a a, a warning to all of us who rely on these systems that we have to keep our own selves and our own agency involved in the process. We can't just sort of drift in the direction that they want us to go because if we do, we are, we are sort of becoming robots ourselves. We are becoming just sort of extensions of these machines rather than people with our own thoughts and feelings and beliefs and preferences. I do want to make an editorial comment here, Kevin, since I uh, alluded to my Amazon bills. I buy my books at Barnes and Noble and Rediscovered Books, our independent bookstore here in Boise. Believe me, I, I hope our listeners like I find their way to Rediscovered Books in Boise or the independent bookstore of your choice, uh, wherever you live. Uh, But getting right on with this, uh, the next rule I'd like you to comment on, and this is one that um, you're not just lecturing here, uh, you're reporting on your own experience, demoting your device. Well, when I got to this one, I thought, now we're getting into some tough stuff here. 
this is tough learning. Uh, so tell us about demoting your device. Yeah, well, one of the sort of things that I noticed as I started reporting this book is that I was, you know, writing about robots and so some of the dangers they pose and automation. And yet every day I was carrying around this little robot in my pocket that we call a smartphone. Um, and that it was basically running my life. It was telling me what to pay attention to, um, you know, who to contact. It was sort of writing my emails for me when I used the little Gmail autocomplete thing. I mean, it was really sort of in the driver's seat of my life. And I hated that because I thought, you know, this is um, supposed to be a tool for me that makes me more productive and, and gives me access to information and easy communication. It's not supposed to be my boss. Um, it's supposed to be essentially my, my assistant. And so I embarked on this campaign um, to sort of demote my device, to turn my smartphone from my boss back into my assistant. And uh, I enlisted a, the help of a professional phone coach, uh, this woman, Catherine Price, um, who has a 30-day sort of detox plan for people who are phone addicts. So for 30 days, I followed Catherine's plan and I got back in control of my own device. It was not easy. It involved things like uh, putting a rubber band around my phone to remind myself not to use it so much. But eventually the process sort of made me more in control of my entire sort of interaction with the digital world. And it felt great. I reconnected with friends. I, my wife loved this. It was probably her favorite 30 days of our <laughs> marriage. And, uh, and it ended up doing me a lot of good in the long term. Um, so I, I recommend that people try that. So I assume that it must have freed up some time as well to do whatever you want to do. But when you're not glued to that device, uh, there must be time to walk the dog an extra half an hour or whatever. Absolutely. I mean, I think we we don't realize until we do something like this, how much our phones have sort of colonized our free time and our brain's idle cycles. There's really no such thing as being bored or unstimulated anymore if you don't want to be. And so part of what sort of reducing or demoting your devices means is teaching yourself to be bored again, teaching yourself to be idle, to sit there, you know, waiting for your friend to show up at the restaurant and, you know, not scrolling through your Facebook feed and just sort of sitting there and observing. And I, I, was, I had a lot of trouble with that. It took me many weeks to get comfortable with it. But once you do it, you start to have these kind of wandering thoughts. You start to connect ideas that you've been sort of mulling over. You start to have uh, inspirations and, and you start to notice things about your surroundings. And it really tunes you in in a way that uh, looking at your phone doesn't. I loved your last chapter on learning machine age humanities. And again, as a, an old college president, once upon a time, this ought to be required reading for every freshman college orientation program for not just the students, but the parents who are attending these orientation programs as well. When it comes to really focusing on what to get out of your education, of course, it's not only for students, it, it's for any of us who want to rethink um, how we are actually applying ourselves on a daily basis to the intelligence that flows our way. I wonder if you could just share a couple of them like attention guarding and room reading, digital discernment, whatever you think of those really makes the point. I think we're nearing the end of our half hour here, but uh, this is, I think, just some great advice that uh, people really need to think about if they want to be in control of their lives. Yeah, so I get asked all the time, what should... I teach my kids. What should my kids learn about these skills that are not going to become irrelevant or obsolete? 
And so I didn't really know what to tell people for the longest time because I don't think that, you know, the answer is just to stop studying math and engineering and start, you know, taking humanities courses. I think we will need some of those skills too. So I tried to come up with a list of what I call um, machine age humanities, which are sort of these skills that will help us or navigate the digital world to stay ahead of machines. And they're not all things that are taught in classrooms. So for example, one of them that I wrote about in the book is what I call room reading, which um, was actually not my idea. It was um, introduced to me by an economist named Jed Kolko. And uh, Jed Kolko is, uh, is gay. And he said that he believes that in the future, a very valuable skill will be the kind of room reading that a lot of young LGBTQ people have to do um, if they're in the closet or if they're in an environment where, you know, they can't truly be themselves, um, that this kind of emotional intelligence, the ability to kind of understand what's appropriate in a social setting to sort of get inside the minds of other people, um, that that's actually an incredibly valuable skill in today's workforce. And it's a skill that we don't really teach that people mostly pick up by circumstance. And so he believes, and and I agree with him, that that's the kind of thing that we should be teaching much more of um, so that it's not just people who have this experience of being closeted who, who get these skills, but it's, it's everyone. It's everyone who can sort of learn, uh, who can become better and more skilled at figuring out what the people around them are feeling and how to act um, in a way that's going to keep them safe and, and appropriate. Well, Kevin, we've run out of time, but I thank you so much for joining us today at Reader's Corner. Again, the name of the book is Future Proof, Nine Rules for Humans in the Age of Automation. Kevin Roos has been our guest. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for writing the book. Thank you for having me. Reader's Corner is presented by Boise State Public Radio News. The engineer for today's show is Eric Jones with production by Joel Wayne. I'm Bob Kuskra. Please join me next week as we talk to today's leading writers about the ideas and issues that help shape our world at Reader's Corner. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now we're taking center stage. Introducing NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of Black-led stories from NPR's podcasts. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts.